Welcome, everybody. You are listening to No Coast Cinema here on WGM Plus, WGM Plus's premiere films podcast i am your host <laughs> little fanfare there uh that is the unofficial sub theme song yeah so we've got the theme and we've got the sub theme song uh i am your host tom hush and i'm joined as always by my co-host connor cornelius hello tom love you best friend right but i, but I also hate you oh so I love you so much that I hate you. So we've got like a frenemy situation going on. Yeah, here. I feel like uh, Gore Vidal and William F. Buckley Jr. Um, See, there's a reference I definitely get. Yeah, that's we're going deep on the political references today. <laughs> but let's get back to movies. That's what we're talking about here. And uh, right now we're going to do our coming soon segment. So this is a segment where we like to talk about what's happening in the business of film here in the United States and around the world because film is a global art and it happens everywhere. Uh, the first big thing on the docket is going to be the WGA, the Writers Guild of America, and they recently came to an important agreement that avoided some very bad stuff for the industry. Connor, give us a little bit of background on what's happening with the Writers Guild. So the Writers Guild of America deals with the people who write for television and film. Mm-hmm. And they threatened to go on strike if they didn't reach some sort of uh, increase in their basic wage, uh, in their just their basic benefit package that they get w- while working for these studios. And uh, what that would have looked like if you work in television and film, you've obviously heard about this. This would have resulted in no more content being generated for the upcoming seasons of, of television. Now, that would not include anything that was already in production. Of course. But um, the last time this happened was about in the mid-2000s. And they did actually strike. There was a writer strike. If you can remember way back when, I know I was watching Lost at the time, and, uh, we and I think we all some- saw what happened with that. Yeah, <laughs> the uh, yeah the writers went on strike. All the late night shows had to go into reruns and everything. The writers were not writing unless something was already in production. But uh, it seems we have avoided that. Correct, Connor? Yeah. The uh, the people are no longer going to strike. The WGA uh, has, uh, uh, with the press, revealed that they got a deal that was actually $130 million better than the agreement that it would have gotten uh, had it accepted the deal that was modeled after the Directors Guild of America deal, which was uh, passed a couple of months ago. Right. And that does raise some interesting concerns for the Directors Guild of America, yeah. but... Uh, the WGA is definitely better off for it. I think the the main points that we're going to be touching on here, the the big three that we could pull out because the um, the actual specifics of the deal are not uh, have not been revealed to the public yet. Correct. But. There there are some numbers out there, and we do have a report from the Hollywood Reporter telling us that. But largely, some of it is kept obscured. It's like, you know, they don't want to let everybody know the super fine details, but they do speak to a few of the main ones. Uh, First, and this is coming from the report from The Hollywood Reporter, are basic wage increases. So they're saying that they're believed to be nominally 3% per year. This is an increase of 3% per year, as with the Directors Guild of America deal that concluded several months ago. So... Per year, we're looking at, for writers, at least a 3% increase in basic wages, which is good. Mm-hmm. You know, they um, People think, when they think you're working in Hollywood, oh, you're rolling in money, right? You know, you're Steven Spielberg or you're all these guys. But really, this is for writers who are 
you know, on the ground trying to just do their thing. They need those wages. Exactly. It takes about two weeks to write an episode for for a television show, and you've got a whole room of writers that are working on that. And where if maybe if you're working in film, you're writing your own movies, you're getting a little bit of bigger slice of that pie. But if you're you know on a in a regular you know more of a normal uh, uh, organization for for that, you're not getting nearly as much money as most people would think. Exactly. So those those increases. Are uh, are going to be good. Those are going to be pretty good. Uh, one another big point of this was the health plan. So uh, the Writers Guild of America, being part of that, gets you. You know, there's a basic health plan that you can get with them. And it was a bit of a contentious point. Yeah, that was definitely one of the reasons that they were threatening that strike. Because you know, you got to have health care. You got to have health care. <laughs> As you can see in uh, the modern political climate, a lot of people pissed off about that. Yeah. You got to uh, have the health care. If you, if you need any indication that people need health care, just turn on the news. Exactly. So they were, this is a very timely sort of thing for the Writers Guild. So they got those, they got their increase in wages and the companies are currently infusing additional monies into the health plan for a total of just under $90 million. But that that sounds pretty good. That sounds really good, actually. But, but what does it actually mean? Yeah, exactly. There is a caveat to that. The union, the Writers Guild of America, in turn, has agreed to make $7 million in cost savings. So that is going to result in possibly reduced benefits, possibly increased premiums, tightened eligibility, or any combination of those things the decision has not been made about what those cost savings are going to be but who knows you know if the 90 million could be nice but if you're losing 7 million in cost savings that are going to reducing benefits for writers uh making them pay more yeah increasing the premiums or you know tightening the eligibility we could see a loss perhaps of uh health care coverage for those writers which you know that's they could be could could be getting more money into the actual health care but losing the health care themselves if they're not quite eligible for that plan and something that i did see here which is where the wga agreement actually diverged from the uh from the directors guild of america agreement that was reached um the dga agreed to having a single uh diversion of of pay mm-hmm. so towards the uh towards your pension of course mm-hmm. however the wga plan has now agreed to three diversions of the income so that means that you can they will be inputting income also towards your pension also towards your 401k you know uh, again here is an example of the numbers that we don't exactly have have not been necessarily released to the public yet however this is a uh, obviously an improvement over the the deal that the dga struck a couple months back Sure. So do you think that maybe the DGA, re, you know, renegotiating some of those terms? They're looking at it. That's, I'm that's, sure. Yeah, that's what the report definitely is alluding to, for sure. Um, and then the final thing we want to talk to talk about is with the TV writers. So the the Writers Guild uh, Association, or Writers Guild of America. Writers pardon, Guild of America. Writers Guild of America. They encapsulate film and television writers. Uh, however, a lot of this deal was trying to get better stuff for TV writers. Uh, we've seen a massive change in the TV landscape. You know, we've got Netflix. Since the last time that they threatened to strike, we've got Netflix, Hulu, 
are doing original series, Amazon doing original series. Um, we've seen the rise of these kind of short season shows such as Game of Thrones or anything else on HBO, really, because they're doing less than uh, the original, you know, 22, 23 episodes a season. And that was kind of a problem for the writers because they were signing these agreements where, you know, the season they've signed on to be exclusive and then they're losing out on the possibility of getting more work. They got to write. They got to write for TV. They got to write for movies. They got to get out there. So what happened is, is for short season series, companies have agreed that writers will be paid pro rata overages if they work more than 2.4 weeks on an episode. So they're going to get a little, they're it's almost uh, overtime sort of, if they're going beyond that original, that two to 2.4 weeks, which, and we'll call it, you know, call it what, three weeks or we'll round down two weeks. Exactly. Basically, if they're working more than two weeks on an episode, um, then they're going to get some pro, what are called pro rata overages. Uh, the companies wanted to fix this at 2.6. The writers wanted to uh, fix that at exactly two weeks. So they... Um, they found that agreement 2.4 so it's a decimal point we'll see how much that actually matters when it comes to them and just for a frame of reference a uh that short season series has been set at 14 episodes or less so the companies wanted to set that at 12 the writers at 16 and um they got they came out to 14 and uh, the whole idea of the concept of span and the related overages to that span is completely new to the WGA's collective bargaining agreement. Mm-hmm. So we've seen a lot of pretty big changes for the Writers Guild. We'll see how it works out for them going forward. Yeah, and uh, hopefully the DGA takes a takes a second look at that deal. Exactly. We don't want to we don't want to get into uh, too much trouble with the DGA. Uh, next, speaking of writers, let's talk about the writer and director Jordan Peele. He recently signed a agreement, an agreement with Universal Pictures. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. So uh, Jordan Peele recently signed a first look deal with uh, with Universal Pictures, as Tom mentioned. Uh, for those of you who don't know what a first look deal is it's essentially a contract which has a clause in there that uh gives a specified party the right to have the uh a preemption right Mm -hmm. to you know the right to accept the right to co uh to co-produce the right to essentially as the name would suggest take a first look at some new intellectual property exactly and this is jordan peele who did the fantastic film get out it was a uh, it was produced by bloomhouse and in conjunction with universal i believe they had the distribution rights and that was made for about 4.5 million dollars and grossed 193 million so this is (laughs) good for jordan peele fantastic and it's great because exactly (laughs) it's it's a great thing for jordan peele because it's fantastic film and he is uh i believe the first black writer and director to break that 100 million mark and so to get that first look deal that's crazy. That's that uh, for him coming from comedy, and now he's doing horror. The next film he's doing, he's decided is going to be another uh, quote unquote social horror, mm-hmm. similar to Get Out. And for Universal's looking for the money, right? When you have that kind of four point five, one hundred and ninety three million over a four point five million dollar budget, even if you want to double that budget. 
to include uh, the marketing. Usually what you would do is take the budget of the film and double it. That's the cost of making the film and then the marketing and the advertising. That's what they need. So even with $9 million, $9 million movie with marketing and $193 million back, they, it would be stupid for them not to try and lock them down. And I don't think it's left theaters yet. It's still going No, up. it is still playing in theaters. It has left most, but you can still find some theaters that are showing Get Out. So that just speaks to the power of that. So, um, you know. But for those of, of, of you who are familiar with Jordan Peele, I mean, most I, I heard about him from uh, Key and Peele, the sketch comedy show. And then before that, Mad TV. Mad TV, of course. But So now he's, he's a big-time director. In horror. In horror. So congratulations to Jordan Peele. Um, just to give you a sense of what he's going from, Bloomhouse, who produced Get Out, they are known for doing these kind of l- lower budget, I would, I would say low to mid-range budget films. Um, they're famous for usually doing horror and uh, just giving you a sense of what they were doing and uh, what he could be moving up from. So uh, Get Out did was $4.5 million budget. Um, the first really big success for Bloomhouse was Paranormal Activity that was made for fifteen thousand dollars and also grossed a hundred and ninety three million dollars. Oh wow! So that's their uh, number. Insidious, another horror film, one point five million dollar budget, ninety seven million dollar take at the box office. The Purge, three million, um, with slightly uh, less of a take, but eighty nine million at the box. Uh, and recently, M Night Shyamalan's Split, nine million dollar budget. Up at that top of their of their general ceiling of uh, base budget, sure. no marketing included on that one, and that made two hundred and seventy five million dollars. There we go. So imagine he's doing a four point five million dollar budget and making one hundred ninety three million dollars. He's going to be getting a lot more money from Universal. But do you think he'll stay with this kind of lower budget and just try to see those high returns? I hope so. It, it does sound like this social horror that he's going to be going for again. Uh, it's kind of following in it's not necessarily going to be a sequel to get out i'm sure no. it won't be but it is sort of sort of like how quentin tarantino did uh inglorious bastards and then moved on to django unchained and then the hateful eight yeah it's that sort of you know it's that sort of uh it's not a sequel it's motif per- motifs yeah want to call it maybe yeah a sequel of motif yeah sure i like that yeah because they're all the, nice. they're they're like historical revenge films exactly so uh again good luck to jordan peele we absolutely loved get out come on the show <laughs> come on the show jordan jordan are you there come on jordan we lo- we lost we lost oh him. no he's not there. all right all right but come on the joe jordan the, come, come on, on the, the joe show. jordan show come on no the sh- cinema <laughs> come on the show jordan uh we'd love to talk to you a little bit about it uh finally you've got uh an interesting tidbit of news from india um this is coming out of the bollywood scene fantastic films being made in india for a long time it's you know it's a great place for cinema but we've finally got the highest grossing film in india recently uh came out yeah bau bali 2 i'm not sure if i'm pronouncing that right and we apologize and but we we're doing apologize the best. <laughs> doing the best we can but uh, yes, the the film was um, the film was released in in India, obviously, uh, released in four different languages, and it grossed a total of a hundred and eighty million dollars so far. So wow. clearly, the well, and this is um, excuse me, this is a continuation of a, of a obviously it's a sequel. So the right. fact that it's the most successful 
of all time is is very interesting. That exactly. it's a sequel. But um this uh comes following a uh the the prequel to it the the first yeah, made a hundred million dollars and so obviously there's a little bit of an improvement here but it's just interesting to see that you know let's let's not forget that Hollywood isn't the only place that's that's making movies right and and something interesting here from this story and this is in Variety uh, in North America the film collected thirteen point one million dollars which is I mean you know compared to it's it's going to be in its home country that's where it's going to do best and then uh, wherever you know you said it was in four different languages mm-hmm. um, so wherever those languages are originally spoken spoken but thirteen point one million in in North America so that means there is an audience here and um, you know there's there's communities here that are from India or speak the languages that this film was translated into that, you know, maybe want to see some stuff, some more stuff from Bollywood crossing over to the United States. Yeah. Let's get a little bit more of an inclusive uh, market going here. Exactly. Because Hollywood is, you know, no longer the top dog necessarily of films. We're seeing a lot more gains in China. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, India, the Bollywood scene has been going on for a long time and has always been very well respected and very well loved in its home country and abroad. So uh, maybe we get some more stuff from India coming here, getting translated and who knows, we could see a total Bollywood revolution again in the United States. The just the common theme that that is really inspiring to, to to both Tom and I, I think, is that it's voices that need to be heard that just don't get the opportunity to be heard. Right. So, congratulations to Bao Bali Two, and uh, we hope to see some more films from 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 our friends in India. Exactly. And uh, India, come on the show. India, Wait. are you there? Are you there? Uh, We'll get them next time. We'll, we'll get them, them next, next time. time. All right. Next up, we are going to be having our uh, feature presentation segment. And speaking gonna, of voices. Speaking of voices that need to be heard, uh, it's John Davies, and he runs a group, a screening series. Um, it's it's many things, but altogether, it's a community called Cinema Obscura, and that's an S in cinema, Sin, as in Sin City. Uh, he does weekly screenings at Township here in Chicago, focusing on bringing filmmakers in the city a place to show their films and connect and have a community. Uh, we're going to be talking to him about what that's all about, his background in film, and so much more here on No Coast Cinema. Are you ready, Connor? I think so. All right. We'll be back in just a bit. No Co-Cinema here on WGN+. everybody you are listening to no co-cinema here on wgn plus wgn plus's premier films podcast we're talking about films here in chicago the business of films films all around the world all that good stuff i'm your host tom hush and joining me is my co-host connor cornelius great to be back we are getting into our 
feature presentation segment. This is where we talk to people who are big in the Chicago films community, people who are up and coming in the films community here in Chicago. And we want to share with you a little bit about what they do and uh, how they're changing the face of cinema here in the city. Our guest today is John Davies. He is from Cinema Obscura. He is actually the creator. The This is his brainchild. Uh, they're a Chicago-based group where today's hottest filmmakers can meet, share ideas, and work together. They're dedicated to helping up-and-coming filmmakers share their passion with the public in various local venues, and their mission is to usher in a new era of Chicago cinema. Welcome to the program, John Davies. How are you doing today, John? Oh, Tom, thank you very much, Connor. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate being here. Yeah, no problem. Thank you so much for joining us. We're really excited to have you here talking a little bit about what you do with uh, Cinema Obscura. If you could actually uh, talk a little bit about what Cinema Obscura is. I know we got a little description there, but uh, in your own words, what is Cinema Obscura? Let's say uh, it's basically a movie club that I decided to put together uh, after living uh, here in the city. Loving these movies. You don't get really get to see them too many places. Uh, just want to get them all under one roof all together. And uh, like the statement says, just get these directors to know each other. I don't really know that there's uh, any place for them to meet uh, and come together. I wanted to be that place. That's fantastic. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in film? You know, you create uh, Cinema Obscura, but uh, let's go back to the beginning a little bit. What about film interested you initially? The biggest thing for me is the escape, getting away, you know, seeing seeing something, being somewhere that I haven't been. You can't do it with a book. I appreciate doing it with a book. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> knock everything out in an hour and a half, you can't really beat a movie, honestly. Yeah, it's pure escapism in 90 minutes or more. Mm. Was there a specific movie that you first watched when you were, uh, you know, in your childhood or anything that really struck you as, you know, the escapist film that you were that, you know, got you into it? I'd say uh, Tom and I were talking a little bit about this before we started, and I'd say the mm -hmm. very first Alien movie really got me into it. Wow! Yeah, um, you know that's that's basically a slasher film in the sci-fi genre, and I just I'm blown away by that one. Every time I see it, I just I love it. Yeah, and I saw that one when I was I don't even know twelve. I was I was a child when I oh, saw wow. it. And I just absolutely fell in love with it. Loved the nightmares that I got from it. <laughs> Continue to love the nightmares that I get from it. And yeah, I I just love it. Yeah, yeah. That's a that's a heavy movie for a twelve year old to watch. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of things wrapped up in one. Yeah, I remember yeah. I remember watching that one uh, during a Fourth of July celebration, and I chose to watch that over fireworks and i don't know if you've been 12 but fireworks are a pretty <laughs> big deal when one. you're a 12 year old kid <laughs> i yeah. skipped it for alien yeah <laughs> so would you say that uh that horror sci-fi is really your entrance into the film world absolutely yeah with the obscura part of it um we're you're showing films that really not a lot of people have seen absolutely yeah. and uh what has been the community response so far when people come to cinema obscura what's the reaction they have to seeing these films that they probably didn't even know existed i'm hoping they love it to be yeah. honest with you i really do um that, they keep coming back so that's a good sign oh yeah uh it's uh what's what's usually the size of the audience when they come a good night will get 35 40 people uh, slow night, it'll be five. Mm -hmm. You know, and honestly, any 
any more than just myself and my quote unquote coworkers that show up for these shows, I'm happy. Sure. Two of you people want to show up, I'm happy. Well, hopefully we'll be able to attend one of those. You have them pretty regularly, right? Every Monday right now at Township. At Township, here yeah. Here on uh, California and Chicago. All yeah. right. Yeah. What does Township think of the whole thing? They love it. They yeah. love it. Uh, they. I had a friend of mine, um, Eli Caterer, who got me in with Steve. And, uh, you know, it's just been nothing but good for both sides. You know, they have something going on on Monday nights. When they do have a show or they need something that they need the room for, they can kick me out. And that's been, you know, a, a part of it from the beginning. It is their mm-hmm. place. And I just want to get my foot in the door and do this. Yeah, absolutely. Are there particular uh, directors or films that have come through Cinema Obscura that you felt were particularly unique or you thought that, you know, how have people not seen this or do you believe that they might go somewhere else with it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, One of my biggest uh, one of my biggest fans, I guess, would be Mark Wilkinson, who's done uh, quite a few different movies. He's working with uh, Suburban Skies um, production company. Uh, pretty solid here in the in the city. Uh, love that dude, uh, Jake Wiseman, who brought me to you. Right, and he was he was actually a guest on our very first episode. Yeah. Yep, yeah, yeah. And they were uh, they were showing scrapers, mm-hmm. and that's kind of their. It's a stoner comedy, you know, very pretty light. And you also uh, there was a double feature with Stony Island. Stony correct? Island, yeah, which I had not seen before. It's fantastic yeah. film, fantastic, fantastic. Uh, but those were those were kind of more on the lighter. End. I guess they were they weren't horror or anything. They were not necessarily no. genre films. Yeah. Um, is there is there like a type of film that you look for when you're booking these guys, or do you not just want to look for? Anything. Anything Anything that's centered around Chicago, shot in Chicago, has a production crew member from Chicago, anything. As long as it's semi-Chicago related, I want it for Cinema Obscura. It's all about getting that voice heard. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, share it with, and it's it's, like we said in the beginning, just sharing it with the other directors and the other people in the industry here in the city and get get you guys to know each other, really. How did you get Cinema Obscura started? Good question. Yeah, when when did it start? <laughs> yeah, uh, it was about April last year. Uh, within, I'd say within days of each other, uh, Emily Esperanza of the Wretched Nobles and John Zacharopoulos of HQ, which is a uh, like a loft space just up the street from Out Obsession Movies Video Store here in Chicago. Uh, within days of each other, they both walked into the store and said, "Do you want to do a movie thing?" And it just like fell in fell into itself from there i guess what made you decide on uh township as the venue was were they just open to it or was there something particular about it you liked i have always been aware of that place i knew about their their side room their venue room i knew that that would be perfect i happen to have a friend that worked there and just put in a good word for me and you know we we just ran from there you know myself and steve uh siegel from township just mm-hmm. started this thing and you know I, I and i can't thank like eli enough he he introduced us and brought me into this place i am still looking for other venues mm-hmm. a couple in the works but township is our main thing here at uh uh like every monday night aside from you know when they need it and holidays and whatnot mm-hmm. so with um with showing these films in township it's a non-traditional way to watch a movie mm-hmm. i think absolutely we can, we can say that mm-hmm. uh what is the experience like watching a film 
at Township in this non-traditional setting versus the experience you're going to get in a typical theater or a movie mm-hmm. palace? It's, I would say it's literally right in between watching it on your couch and going to the movies. Because <laughs> you can just sit there. You can play with your phone. You can be distracted. You can do whatever you want. You can order a burger and fries from the dudes at Township. You can have a beer. But it's, it's not as serious as if you were to go to a, uh, a movie theater. Right. And it's, it's not as, I guess, homey if you were to just stay at home and watch a movie. You're still hanging out with a bunch of people. You're going to meet some people you never met. Mm-hmm. You're going to meet me, maybe. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's the bar-going experience for people who like to watch movies. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> get, get you out of the house and come see some cool stuff. Do you think this is maybe a way for... Uh, movies to be especially on the these smaller scale films the indie films is this a way for them to get shown instead of going the typical route of trying to get distribution and trying to do this that and the next thing is cinema obscura uh, sorry cinema obscura or anything like it is do you think this is the way going forward i truly hope so you know building a fan base is probably the first thing you should be thinking about when you're making a movie um not necessarily selling it to a studio not necessarily, you know, making money off of it, but getting people to like your product and like what you do, you know, so that you can continue to do it and do it again and again and again. Um, you know, you can make one amazing movie, sell it off, and never do anything again. That's okay, I suppose, but you need a starting point. You know, we're hopefully a little bit of a starting point. You know, we're not going to necessarily get you into the film festivals, not necessarily going to get you... Uh, into the music box but we will get you a fan base i can pretty much guarantee you that i mean at the very least it would be just a a fun thing to do on an evening right exactly and you're not going in there you're not getting any of that price hikes that you get when you if you go to a movie palace or a Mm -mm. theater Mm -mm. you're just going in you're going to a bar and then you're watching a few movies that were made by people who yeah and i I can't stress enough the movies the screenings everything they do is 100 percent free so just show up yeah watch something Laugh, cry, leave, feel something, <laughs> talk about it, tell your friends about it. Feel something, people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so with the filmmakers that you've had uh, come in, what, what's the feeling you get from them when this could possibly be their first screening of this film? Mostly appreciation, honestly. A lot of appreciation from these guys and, and, and ladies. It's, uh, you know, I started this to help them out, but they're helping me get to know them and their community more than I could ever have imagined. I had very little idea what I was going to be doing with this when I started it and all the positive reaction from all these guys. And it's just unbelievable. It's so much fun. That's fantastic. I mean, it's the, the whole, what we, what we said about just getting the film shown Mm -hmm. and getting your very first film, uh, seen by a group of people. Uh, last episode we talked with Nate waters and uh, from Into the Void Films, and he said that the experience of hearing someone react to your film and just at least showing it positive or negative reaction, it helps you grow as a filmmaker. Do you see Cinema Obscura as helping these filmmakers grow? I, I hope so. I hope so. I hope that I hope there all these directors are having in mind the uh, the ability to play their movie in my my little venue. Or wherever I'm doing it, wherever right. we're doing it, um, you know, I don't want to take any credit for anything that they're doing. They're doing what they're doing because they want to do it. I'm just here to help them get a little bit of a following. What's it like planning this? 
with Township? You know, is it is it stressful to find films, or are the films just raining down from the sky? It, they're not raining. I'm definitely looking for uh, you know applicants all the mm-hmm. time. Um, there's a lot of stuff uh, that I've had to go for. Luckily, it's only a once once a week thing. Right. Um, some of them are very easy, where it's just a feature length film created by somebody here local, and then they're going to pick a movie that inspired them to make that movie, or just something that they want to share with everybody. Mm-hmm. And that's an easy double feature. Uh, the ones where I do have to do a little work are the TV party nights, and that's where I have. You know, a dozen to 15 different directors with a bunch of different shorts, all under one roof, all getting watched by a whole bunch of different people. Those ones take some time. Those ones take a lot of work to get going. And where can people apply to get their their film shown with Cinema Obscura? Uh, just send me a DM on the uh, Facebook and, uh, you know, send me I'll send you my address uh, via the email. You can send me your links, whatever you got. And share, share, share. All right, excellent. And that's Cinema Obscura with an S with for an S. cinema. Sin. Um, sin right. Cinema. I love it. Uh, we're going to be right back in just a moment with John Davies from Cinema Obscura. He's the creator. This is his brainchild, this group, this weekly series of films. Uh, next, we're going to be talking a little bit about some bigger questions. The modern film industry, what it's doing right, what it's doing wrong, and uh, how Chicago as a community can be a beacon for filmmakers this is no coast cinema here on wgn plus i'm your host tom hush joined by my co-host connor cornelius and our guest right now is john davies we'll be right back in just a moment Back again with No Coast Cinema here on WGM Plus. I'm your host, Tom Hush, joined by my co-host, Connor Cornelius. And our guest right now is John Davies from Cinema Obscura. It is a group. It is a screening series. It is a whole lot of things dealing with film here in Chicago. They're helping filmmakers here and film fans here come together and usher in a new era for Chicago Cinema. Uh, Thanks again for joining us, John. We really appreciate it. I really appreciate you guys. Thank you. All right. What I wanted to get into for this portion is uh, a little bit bigger questions, Um, stuff about the film industry and how it compares to Chicago. So let's start with the modern film industry. How do you feel about it? As someone who is an appreciator of film, someone who goes to the movies, Mm -hmm. what do you think about the way movies are made and how they're released here in uh, 2017. Well, I think we live in a really good time right now for movies. You know, a lot of CGI coming out, a lot of stuff they can do with computers, a lot of stuff they don't need to do with the computers. <laughs> right. Uh, we talked a little bit about uh, the film The Void yes. off off the air. Yes. And that's something that uh, uses a lot of practical effects. Absolutely. And you, you're a big fan of practical effects, I, correct? Yeah, I, I am. Yeah, they they last. They, they tend to uh, hold up through the years sure you you can go back and watch Stephen King's The Mist look at the CGI in that look at Lawnmower Man from even further back it just doesn't hold up no the uh, the miniatures from Star Wars hold up the practical effects from The Void will hold up forever Mm -hmm. and it's just mind blowing that those guys spent the money and took the time to do all that work for that movie in particular The Void and I just 
Thank you. Thank you, Astron. <laughs> yeah. So I guess that's where some of the the big money that you get in the, you know, in what most people think of when they think of the film industry. That's one of the positives probably that are coming along with that. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 But we do also know um, that Hollywood is, on average, making less movies. Um, and this came out of the uh, the WGA, the Writers Guild Association, mm-hmm. kind of talks that they had recently. One of the issues they had was that Hollywood's not making a lot of movies anymore. They're making bigger movies. Yeah. We're seeing, you know, these massive tent poles like, you know, the Transformers series is still unbelievably going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got Star Wars that could go on into infinity. But these smaller budget films are kind of disappearing a little bit. Do you feel that's a bad a bad thing, you know, less choice? Or maybe we should be spending more money on bigger tent poles? No, I don't. I, no. Think, I think we need to revert back to the uh, the originals of cinema get the small people up there get the small budget movies up there you know we don't need we don't need guardians of the galaxy for the rest of our lives no. we really don't <laughs> you know we, we need we need some substance here and there we don't need explosions constantly and if there's anything more that could be sort of a poster child for that i mean get out was made on a four million dollar budget mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. we saw the returns that it got on that it yeah was- astronomical yeah nobody saw that coming mind-blowing successful yeah mind-blowing so let's uh look at looking at get out and looking at uh bloom house productions they seem to be a uh, a studio that is keeping the mid-budget movie alive mm-hmm. more or less most of their films sit somewhere between that five to ten million dollar mark um is and they're seeing great returns they're seeing not only you know financial success but we're seeing critical success with most of it i mean the the insidious films are not exactly well beloved by critics but they're they're serviceable in terms of horror yeah um so is that the way we go forward i don't know i don't know what they're going to do going forward i tell us john (laughs) (laughs) if they could get more original content and knock it off with the remakes I think most of us would be happy. Seriously. Just enough with the remakes. Enough with the remakes. Well, and since Cinema Obscura is, you know, showing smaller films that are, you know, more original, Mm -hmm. they're not, they can't draw on these massive franchises. No one's coming into Cinema Obscura with their version of Star Wars Rogue One. Do you think that these films you're showing show the promise of maybe getting into that mid-range budget could these directors be really absolutely yeah yeah these are all small budget movies that are made by people with real jobs and this is just something they do on the side and they're fantastic a lot of these movies are just great seriously and uh, you know if someone is you know maybe a more casual movie viewer they're going to see these big budget films Mm Sure. What would they see pretty much the same level of quality in these smaller, you know, personal films that you're showing at Cinema Obscura versus the big tentpole? Do you need the money to capture the casual viewer? I don't think you do. I really don't think you do. <clears throat> you know, if you make if you make a product good enough and there's there's like I was saying, if there's substance to it, people will want it. You know, if they, they're not just looking for, you know, famous people in makeup and cgi effects and cool explosions Mm -hmm. there are people out there that do want substance i know they are out there and a lot of these people are making these movies (laughs) (laughs) so i I need these people to get together and to know each other and yeah 
Absolutely. Get them all in a room. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To your point, I, I recently watched Scrapers, which was written and directed by a friend Jake Wiseman, who yep. I believe we all know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and kind of to your point about how when you are watching something with of quality, you that, that shines through, right? Exactly. And even though Scrapers is very obviously a lower budget film, mm-hmm. the cleverness really shines through, and you are, you are definitely struck by the sense that the person that's writing this definitely had a vision in mind yeah and it's yeah it's just a f- it's a fun thing to watch it's a fun movie and it's got heart it's got a lot of heart i don't know why people don't want heart anymore but <laughs> yeah. I, do, I personally do and i know a handful of people that do and those are the people that i'm gonna hug all the, all the time and every day there you go so yeah that's what cinema obscure is all about but it's all about hugging and heart that's right i love it spreading love with the uh with the film industry we've talked about some things that it could be doing better. We'll call it wrong. They're doing. They're making some mistakes here. They're doing too few films mm-hmm. that are too high budget, and it's cutting out essentially what I would call the middle class of film. Is there anything that you think they're doing right? Is or is Hollywood getting anything correct? I don't know. I'm torn because there is a lot of technology that we have now that will make these films better. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm going to keep going back to the mist because that yeah. movie. The atmosphere in that movie, the heart of that movie is amazing, but the special effects are laughable. They're <laughs> yeah. not not good. It's a I feel like The Mist, and that's personally a movie I really enjoyed mm-hmm. when I saw it. I was, you know, I'm a I'm a fan of Frank Darabont and mm-hmm. I think he's pretty much adapted Stephen King better than most. Um, in terms of, you know, Stephen King, I don't think outright hates The Mist, unlike <laughs> The Shining. Uh, but he, it, that movie is uh, almost a case study in having a really good story and mm-hmm. making a film with intention and with understanding and having great characters and everything. But the the effects of the day, you know, what probably what he was forced to use, they were just like, well, yeah. we can't do the practical mm-hmm. stuff. We got to use some CGI. It shows where CGI can fall short, but I feel like with The Mist, it's still the the characters and the, the rest of the film makes up for that. Exactly. Sure, yeah. Exactly. Because when you see those giant creatures walking around, yeah, they don't look great. Mm-hmm. You know, it could be better, but honestly, when I watch it again, I just don't care. Yeah. I'm just like, I'm so engrossed in the story. Well, I, I 100% agree, and I feel that Hollywood has traded that. They would rather give you the pretty tentacles and the pretty CGI <laughs> and save money on the acting and the heart and the atmosphere and the rest of it. Which is totally... It'll look, I, it'll look nice, but it won't feel nice. And it's totally ironic considering what you said, that these practical effects, they age so much better. You they, go back and watch Jaws, mm-hmm. yeah, it's very obviously a fake shark, but it looks a hell of a lot better than, you know, Deep Blue Sea, oh God. where it's... <laughs> These CGI sharks just popping out and eating <laughs> Sam Poor Jackson. Sam L. Oh man, Poor I, Sam L. give me give me a shark that barely works, yeah. and it still gives you an incredible film mm-hmm. that ages great because you have the acting, you have the story, you have the the direction. Exactly. It's all there. Exactly, it's all there. Uh, so we, you know. Hollywood's got a lot to work on. They could pro- they could stand to look at their own history and uh, maybe learn something about it. Now, comparing it to Chicago, we've compared it a little bit to what people are doing in Chicago, these low-budget things. Why is Chicago, in your opinion, um, a, a fertile place for the filmmaker? We're in the Midwest, baby. We're the heart of this country. Everybody knows that California and New York are dying. 
Mm-hmm. Is that safe to say? They're eating themselves. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. They're they're just they're destroying themselves. Um, Chicago's where it is. Dick, Dick Wolf knows. Everybody else uh, should know. Yeah. Follow Dick Wolf. Yeah. He's, I mean, how many series has he launched about the Chicago municipal, like, I believe services? there's 27 or 28 different series. Oh, <laughs> Chicago Fire, Chicago Fire Part 2, mm-hmm. The Fire. Yeah. <laughs> could, could we see that? I would. I would love to see a CTA. Yeah. Come on, Dick. That could be. Uh, that could oh my God! Yeah, it just I had a flash of what that would look like. Yeah, mm-hmm. Cinema Obscure presents Chicago CTA uh, conductors, bus and heads <laughs> all all the way up the L. Yeah, the, the bus drivers are the stars of the city. This yeah, year, honestly, that's so, absolutely. But you make a point, Chicago over. You know, the last few years has really evolved in a place where people are coming to make films. Mm-hmm. The you know, if we want to look back at the Dark Knight series um, up to uh, Dark Knight Rises, which I think they changed to New York or they 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 did less or in Chicago, Philadelphia, or something. yeah, something yeah. a different Pittsburgh. city. But you watch uh, Batman Begins and The Dark Knight, mm-hmm. um, two really great big budget superhero movies. Yep. They were here in Chicago. Yep. Every time you're on Lower Wacker, uh, you know you can look over and be like, hey, this is where this chase scene. Took place. We are forever Gotham City. Ex- yeah, forever. And, honestly, and Transformers as well. Done a lot of filming here. The number of TV series filming mm-hmm. here now is. Are we becoming the new place to go? I hope so. I really do. A lot of talented people in this city, and they need the work. To be honest with you, that's true. That's absolutely. It opens up so many jobs. You got extras, mm-hmm. people on the crew, all that, and we can finally see some uh, some stars or something yeah, like that. Exactly. Um, I know uh, Joe Swanberg. Who is I don't know I don't think he's originally from Chicago but he's very very much established himself as a Chicago filmmaker. Um, he did Drinking Buddies, which okay. I believe was filmed here in Chicago, and he recently did um, a series called Easy for Netflix. He did the film uh, Win It All, which was for Netflix. I mean, he's filming in Rogers Park, mm-hmm. where no one is filming. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, you know, maybe Cinema Obscura will have the next big Netflix star showing soon. I. That would be nice. I mean, honestly, I'd like Chicago to stay on under the radar for a little while longer. That's true. Uh, we don't need everybody from Hollywood here. We mm-hmm. don't need everybody from New York here. But uh, you know what we do have here is working, and we're gonna we're just gonna keep running with it. That's fantastic. So Chicago is a thriving place. It's you know there's a lot of filmmakers here, a lot of people doing some really cool stuff. Do you have any plans to expand Cinema Obscura? I know that you mentioned um, maybe doing some venues outside of Township, mm-hmm. moving it around a little bit. Um, what are your plans for the future? I would love to take this not only from venue to venue here in Chicago, but other places in the country. I would love to do this. If there's another you know, group of people out there that are doing some shorts, doing some crazy stuff that just doesn't have an audience for it. Put something like Cinema Obscure together yeah, and do it. Have like, a few different chapters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, something like a tour even maybe. Yeah. Get out there and, you know, have you ever thought about going out to maybe like the suburbs or anything like that, trying to find the audience? Mm, I don't really want to be that mobile yeah, <laughs> just yet. It sounds If tough. I'm going outside of Chicago, I'm going to go way outside yeah. of Chicago. Yeah, sure. You know, I'm going to... 
take it to these big tentpole cities. Mm-hmm. Go, to, go to the cities that I just dissed on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, they've got, you know, it, it reminds me a little bit of something like Second City. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's a Second City up in, like, Toronto. There's a, se- mm-hmm. you know, there's people from Second City that went on to start their own groups in, um, you know, in New York and L.A. So maybe Cinema Obscura, that's the next thing mm-hmm. as you move to these bigger cities. If you want to head to their Facebook, it's Cinema Obscura, and that's an S in cinema. Mm-hmm. So definitely check them out on Facebook. Uh, find all these updates. You're going to get them there. Mm-hmm. And if you want to see some more from John Davies on social media, he also runs the social media for Odd Obsession Movies. Great Instagram page. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Tons of fun stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you again so much, John Davies. I really appreciate you guys letting me come on and talk about my stuff, Connor and Tom. Yeah. It's awesome. We really appreciate you coming on. And we will see you at Township. We will see you at the movies. Thank you. Cheers. All right. We're going to be back in a little bit on No Coast Cinema, we're going to be doing a small retrospective on the recently deceased director, Jonathan Demi. Stick around. That is uh, Anthony Hopkins as Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs. Cue theremin. Cue the theremin. (laughs) You are listening to No Coast Cinema here on WGN Plus, WGN Plus's premier films podcast. We're covering films all around the world but mostly in Chicago, uh, but also talking about the business of films and just the art of making films as well. And uh, when it comes to making films as art, there's perhaps very few directors as talented and as accomplished as the uh, recently deceased director, Jonathan Demi. Uh, Jonathan Demi directed Silence of the Lambs. He did the... um, Talking Heads concert film Stop Making Sense. He also did Philadelphia, starring Tom Hanks and Denzel Washington, and and so much more. And he recently passed away um, very, very sudden. It felt very sudden because, you know, were we hearing a lot of health updates from Jonathan Demme? Not really. No. So who knew, who knew that he was struggling with esophageal cancer? Exactly. Passed away from esophageal cancer. Um, April 26th. April 26th. I believe the age seven, uh, 75 years old. He was um, relatively young. So I I believe in in his 70s, passed away from esophageal cancer. So we just wanted to do a quick little retrospective here in our uh, post-credit sequence, looking back at some of the big films that Jonathan Demme directed. Um, It's really a fascinating career. Truly, truly, because, you know, he was really not massive in in the industry, 
started in the early 80s working on you know smaller budget comedy films exactly started started back then and he was really growing from there and his big break was obviously silence of the lamps with anthony hopkins um and jodie foster as clary starling and that was one of the few horror movies that uh made it to the academy awards and it is a horror movie some people have argued against that but it is a horror movie it you know everybody knows the story hannibal the cannibal buffalo bill clary starling they can quote it a million times and um it's such a mature film as well in terms of the the filmmaking experience. Absolutely. When you watch that, it is, it is the eye of someone who really knows what they're doing. He made that film in his mid-40s. And uh, when you look at it, it is just an incredible work of not just horror, not just thriller, whatever you want to call it, but just film. Um, he had an incredible way of looking at... Um, the characters in the frame. Um, if we can all collectively remember that scene with um, with Anthony Hopkins, when any scene really, when uh, Clary Starling is talking to Hannibal Lecter, he's got these amazing views of their faces. And he's using these, these wide-angle lenses that really give you, it makes their face seem really big it inhabited the psychological element of that movie yeah and you're looking directly into their eyes which is kind of why i feel like the academy probably let it go as far as it did it won best uh best picture best director i believe at least was nominated best actress yeah and um anthony hopkins got an oscar for his performance as hannibal lecter and uh Jonathan Demme is always going to be associated with that film. There's no, there's no question about it. That's going to be the one that really stands out to people. But um, we do. Ha- he has had a fairly long career. As I said, he made um, he made Sounds of the Lambs when he was in his mid forties. But another film that came out after Silence of the Lambs was Philadelphia. And that was another critically acclaimed film. Um, Tom Hanks and Denzel Washington, as I said before, I'm just going to play a little clip here from early on in the film when Denzel and Tom Hanks are talking to each other. If you don't know the the premise of the film, it's about a lawyer who is fired from his job um, and he believes that he was wrongfully terminated because he is a gay man with AIDS and he takes this case in this scene to Denzel Washington and uh, Denzel doesn't really know what to make of the whole thing alright explain this to me like I'm a two year old okay because there's an element to this thing I just cannot get through my thick head didn't you have an obligation to tell your employer you had this dreaded deadly infectious disease that's not the point from the day they hired me to the day I was fired, I served my clients consistently, thoroughly, with absolute excellence. If they hadn't fired me, that's what I'd be doing today. And they don't want to fire you for having AIDS, so in spite of your brilliance, they'd make you look incompetent, thus the mysterious lost file. Is that what you're trying to tell me? Correct. I was sabotaged. I don't buy it, counselor. That's very disappointing. I don't see a case. I have a case. If you don't want it for personal reasons. Thank you. That's correct. I don't. Powerful. Um, Great performances from Tom Hanks and also from Denzel Washington. But uh, that movie came out in a time when I felt like it was really important um, to be talking about the AIDS crisis. And Jonathan Demme handled it in such a beautiful, artful way. Um, There's another scene um, that I I call just the opera scene where... um, 
Tom Hanks character is listening to an opera and it starts it come becomes almost dream it starts out normal he's listening to the opera and then you kind of get into the head of the character and the camera is coming around and the lighting changes to all red and it become and he starts talking about, about how he's become like death and all this kind of stuff and he's conquering his death and I just don't know if any other director could have handled the subject and handle it in such a cinematic way. Yeah, again, it's just a great uh, example of him being able to take uh, what essentially what you're filming is just the outward facade, but really breaking through to that psychological element, which is so important in a movie uh, like like Philadelphia or even like Silence of the Lambs. Exactly. Um, and finally, I want to talk just really quickly about um, I'll kind of mash them together two films um, one of them is called Swimming to Cambodia and that is uh, starring Spalding Gray and that's a, a, a film version of one of his famous lo- long monologues of his one man performance of Swimming to Cambodia and um also the film stop making sense which is the concert film to pretty much to end all concert films starring the talking heads um it is looked to as the template of how to do a concert film even and, though while it was breaking it at the same time exactly he was he was taking concert films to a new level and creating a new way to look at uh capturing live performance and the same thing goes for spalding gray because capturing a live theater performance is super difficult to really get it right you can't just stick the camera in front of the stage and call it you have to capture the whole performance and similar to what he would do in silence of the lambs and what he would do in philadelphia he's really good at getting the character he's really good at showing the the performance of the whole thing and that's why swimming to cambodia is so great and he does the same thing and stop making sense he captures the energy of the talking heads now granted a lot of you know what's happening on stage is partially the talking heads especially the stuff with the big suit that uh (laughs) that david burns wearing and everything that's happening up there is partially talking heads but it shows a man who really understood his subjects and how to get and how to capture the performance of his subjects whether or not he was actively uh directing them Absolutely. And to your point, I just thought I read a great article, uh, an interview from Charlie Libin, who was a longtime camera operator that worked with Demi on many. He actually directed more than just the Stop Making Sense concert film. He directed several from Neil Young, uh, Heart of Gold, Trunk Show and Journeys. Mm -hmm. And uh, just something that he said about Libin that just makes me feel like I know him a little bit more was that he says he never lost that childlike curiosity from behind the camera. And obviously he spent his entire life working, you know, towards the film career. And it's just nice to hear from somebody that, you know, was a longtime colleague of his that he just never lost that childlike curiosity. And that's that's I think that's where we'll uh, cap it off for Mr. Jonathan Demi. Again, thank you for the films. And and we only covered a couple here, but please look into his work. If you already love Silence of the Lambs, if you already love Stop Making Sense, if you already love Philadelphia, go look into his previous films because he's he was a filmmaker for so long and it would be a shame to, you know, forget all the great things that he did. So. 
that will be uh, that will be it for us here on No Coast Cinema. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to John Davies from Cinema Obscura for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Uh, we will see you next time. I've been your host, Tom Hush, joined by Connor Cornelius. Thank you again, Connor. Thank you, Tom. You're my best friend, but I also hate you. Yeah, we, we have some things to work out. Yeah, we're so going, tune in next time. Yeah, tune in next time. We'll be in couples therapy. No Coast Cinema here on WGN+. Plus. Good morning, good afternoon, and good night. We're going to play you out with a little bit of music here from the Talking Heads from Jonathan Demi's fantastic concert film, Stop Making Sense. Good night. Let's go.